Thank you for leading us in prayer tonight, Brother Wayne. And I am I'm grateful. Wayne mentioned that in his prayer. I am so grateful that God invites us to come boldly before his throne, not with an added attitude of arrogance, but an, an attitude of confidence that we are there at his invitation for the purpose of making requests. And he knows how weak we are and how helpless we are. So I am I am grateful for prayer, and I hope you I hope you are too. Philippians chapter three. You want to make your way there? How to develop a normal Christian life uh, is going to be our topic tonight. Let's look at some church members uh, for some examples as we make a, make an introduction to this to this study uh, this evening. First of all, there's a woman, and she's in uh, she's in the church, and she's a good lady, morally speaking. Uh, she's a good wife. She's a good mom. She loves her kids. She loves her husbands or her husband. <laughs> Almost like being in a Mormon church right there. Uh, she loves her husband. She keeps her home. She has the gentle, quiet spirit that Paul wrote about. For her, Christianity is about being a good church member. It's about not committing the big sins. She doesn't pray like she should. She knows she should pray more regularly. But when bad things happen, she does pray. She doesn't read her Bible like she should. She'd rather watch TV in her spare time. And then there's a fellow in the church. He's also there. But he only attends when it's convenient for his schedule. And quite honestly, it's not very convenient for him most of the time. He loves and provides for his family. He's a good husband and a good dad. He's a good neighbor and a good friend. But he doesn't pray like he should. And in his personal life, he's tolerating some habits and some attitudes that he knows are sinful. And then there's a young adult. And she's going to church, but the church really doesn't seem relevant anymore to her. She looks around and she sees the older Christians, and they've been doing this for a long time, and they don't look really happy about it. And so why should she continue doing something that really doesn't appear to be making a difference in the lives of people who've been doing it longer than she has? So as a result, as a result she comes infrequently. She hardly ever reads her Bible. And she only prays when the problems in her life get huge. And then there's a church member who talks about how much they love Jesus. And they faithfully go to church. But this believer is always being spiritually defeated. He doesn't know anything about the victorious Christian life. He's always in the middle of some big spiritual crisis, some battle. And he prays about it. But most of his prayers, quite honestly, are self-centered, and they're not prayers to praise God or to intercede for others. Generally, when he hears sermons and when he hears Bible lessons, they're for somebody else. Now, when you hear those Christians described, you're thinking to yourself, well, man, that's just, that's just how life is. That is, for us, that's the normal idea of Christianity, right? That's supposed to, that's how life is supposed to be. It's, it's one where we suffer loss. It's one where we fall or fail more than we succeed. We cry out more than we shout in praise. That's just the normal Christian life. It's, 
It's just what we do. And those failures that, that we have in our life, whether it's in our, our Bible reading and prayer with God, or if it's in our church attendance, or if it's in our habits or our attitudes, it, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy is. And so we justify them. But we settle with ideas like, do some of those things ring true? Do, do some of those descriptions of those church members, can you hear that? Can you see that? And we think to ourselves, that's how it is in Christianity. And I put on your worksheet, oftentimes what we think is normal Christianity is really abnormal Christianity. The normal Christian, can, can we talk for just a moment about the normal Christian that's described in the Bible? The normal Christian walks in victory in this life. The normal Christian is in love with Jesus Christ and lives like they're in love with Jesus. The normal Christian is not the victim. He or she is the victor. That's the normal Christian. But normal Christianity like that today seems so rare, and too often our churches are filled with Christians who live in defeat instead of, like the apostle wrote, instead of going from victory to victory. The Bible's idea of normal Christianity is far from ours. To see a normal Christian tonight, I want you to consider the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture. One of these days, we're going to make a trip verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Do you not love the book of Philippians? This is a fantastic book. When I read these four short chapters and consider that he's in jail... Writing these. These are one of Paul's prison epistles. And he writes constantly through here about the joy of the Christian. But if we want to see what a normal Christian looks like, let's not, let's not look around at Christians who are down in the mouth and complaining and struggling and, and, and not victorious. Let's look at, let's look at one that the Bible describes as a normal Christian. Now, let me, let me say this to you. Normal is not always the majority. You know, in our, in our democratic way of thinking, we tend to, at least subconsciously, we tend to think to ourselves, if the majority says so, then it's right. That's how we operate. The majority, uh, whether or not you're taking, whether you're taking a vote in your home on where to go after lunch, or after church for lunch on Sunday, or if you're voting at the polls, we tend to think, well, the majority called it. Majority doesn't necessarily mean normal. The normal Christian life is described in the Bible. And can I tell you, when I look at that, it convicts me in certain areas of my life. And I think to myself, I need to be more normal than I am. But for tonight, we're going to look at Paul as our example of a normal Christian. He lived the normal Christian life. I don't think Paul would have ever been satisfied to live the type of Christianity that we settle for in our daily lives. I don't think Paul would say things like, well, I'm just doing the best that I can. I just have a hard time being a Christian. I don't think Paul would have ever said that. Paul didn't ever say, I'm doing the best that I can. You know why? Because he knew the best he could do was unacceptable. So he wasn't going to settle for the best he can. And I want to tell you, Christians, don't settle for the best you can do. 
because the best you or I can do is not going to do much. So Paul defaulted to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, not I, but Christ that liveth in me. Well, he's going to be our example. Um, Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. And tonight, let's read down through. Let's start at verse uh, 7. And let's read down through verse number 14. I don't know if we'll use all those verses, but let's see what they get for us, all right? Philippians 3, 7. He has just been talking about his past life and his successes in this life. And he says in verse 7, But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's stop our reading there. I want to talk to you tonight about this normal Christian life He gives us insight here as to what the normal Christian life should be. So I'd like to take from these verses uh, and look at three steps that we can take to being a more normal Christian. I don't want to be an abnormal Christian. A lot of times you'll hear people saying, you know what, you don't want to be a normal Christian because their definition of the person that makes that statement, their definition of normal Christianity is not the Bible's definition of normal Christianity. Paul is describing here, especially in verses uh, 7 through 11, Paul is describing normal Christianity. Spirit-led, spirit-filled, victorious, confident in Christ, living uh, by grace and by faith. Speaking the truth in love. Loving the Lord Jesus. Loving his return. This is the normal Christian life. That's where you and I ought to go to. The Bible says this is what a Christian looked like. I I can't tell you how many times, and those of you who are in his Sunday school class, um, you know what I'm talking about. I can't tell you how many times I've used Dr. Manley's illustration of carrying plutonium in your pocket. When he gave that illustration, that just, that just completely cleared things up in my mind of what a wonderful illustration of what it is to have Christ in your life. Dr. Manley said, you can say whatever you want to say, but if you've got a ball of plutonium in your pocket, everybody around you is going to know it because it's going to drastically affect the way that you look. 
You ever seen somebody with radiation poisoning? It's terrible. Hair is falling out. Skin is scaling up. Skin is discolored. There's just the look of death on that person. There is no hiding that. No makeup artist from Hollywood is going to cover that up. It just can't be done. That plutonium carried around in the pocket makes such a difference in that person that it's drastic. On the flip side of that, if I tell you that I've been carrying a ball of plutonium in my pocket for three months and then I go out and run a 5K in record-setting time and I come back and I'm not even huffing and puffing, you can know for sure I do not have a ball of plutonium in my pocket. Now, I may think I do. I may be convinced that that little thing in my pocket is a ball of plutonium. But because it has made no impact on me, has not damaged my health in any way, I still am pretty healthy, there's no way I'm carrying plutonium in my pocket. And then Dr. Manley made this application. He said, it's the same way if Jesus Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, he will not be hid. And if he's not in you, he will not be faked. It will come out. And so Paul is telling us tonight, if you have Christianity, then this is what the normal Christian looks like. And as I look through these verses, I'm thinking to myself and I'm praying, God, help me to be more normal in my Christianity than I am. So let's look at these three things that Paul gives us. He's he's instructing us how to have the normal Christian life. The first thing is this. You have to calculate your losses. That's the first idea. Calculate your losses. In verse number 7, it says, What things were gained to me, those I counted for loss. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Calculate your losses. What, what is he talking about here? Well, the first thing is this. It involves a personal assessment. Do you ever, do you ever assess yourself? Is that, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I don't want to do that in a public forum because I, I don't know if I can take it or not. So uh, self-assessment. What you need to do and what I need to do is involve ourselves in a personal assessment. Paul has just calculated in his in verses 4, 5, and 6, he's just told you about what he was before Christ. And he says in those verses, boy, if anybody has reason to trust in themselves in order to please God, if they have any reason to trust in their birthright, if they have any reason to trust in their religious background, it is me. He says that at the end of verse number five or four. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Nobody's going to beat me on this. And yet all of those things, he says, he counted this as loss. That word loss literally means damaging or injurious. I count those things that I had back there as damaging in my life. What many thought were assets to Paul were actually liabilities. They were obstacles. All of those things worked to prevent Paul from uh, from trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in anyone outside of himself. He says in this... uh, He says in this passage of scripture how good of a person he was. You you see that in verse number 5? Circumcised the eighth day. That was a fulfillment of Mosaic law. You were to circumcise male 
Jews on the eighth day of eight days after their birth. He's of the stock of Israel, mom and dad, both Jews. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Israel's first king, Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What's he saying? Well, I, if anybody's going to trust in what they've accomplished, it would be me. That's what he's saying. And that's why those things were so damaging, because for him, they were a source of trust. They were an object, rather, of trust. He was trusting in who he was and what he did. And the same is true for people today. We cannot, well, let me just say this. Being raised in a Christian home, going to church all the time, being a good person, none of those things get us into heaven. I was raised in a Christian home, but before January 19th, 1977, had I died, I would have gone to hell because I knew what sin was. I knew I was a sinner prior to January 19th, 1977. I knew I was a sinner, but I wasn't saved. But I was raised in a Christian home. My dad was an officer at the church. My mom taught Sunday school. My dad taught Sunday school. They went out on visitation. They did this. They did that. None of those things were good enough for me, though. And that's where that's where a lot of people live today. Well, this is what I've done. I go to church all the time. But John 3 says this, ye must be born again. Church is good. Look, I think you ought to be at church. I think we ought to have more people and more chairs in here on Wednesday night. I think you ought to go to church. And I think you ought to raise your children in a Christian home. Absolutely. I think there are things in this world you are to protect your children from. But none of those things are going to save your kids. They must be born again. And you must be born again. And I must be born again. This is what we're called to do. Going to church, a good thing. Following the law as a Jew, that was a good thing in its place. But Paul got it out of place, as as his name was Saul at the time. He got it out of place, and he was trusting in his own good works as if that was going to get him to heaven. Now, was it right for him as a Jew to bring sacrifice to temple? Yes, it, it was right for him as a Jew, but not to trust in those sacrifices. They were to foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ. We can let good things become Uh, That ought to be in our life, but they can become objects of trust and they're not worth it. We are to be born again. So there's this personal assessment that Paul had to make. The second thing is a present accounting. Paul uses here in verse number uh, 7, But what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus My Lord, Paul uses a present tense verb to describe what he does with those things that he once counted as assets, but now he knows their liabilities. But he uses, this was done in the past, but he's using a present tense verb. What does he do with them? What is he doing with them right now? Those things that he used to count on, those things that used to be objects of his trust, what is he doing with them? He's doing two things. Number one, he's counting them as loss. He's recognizing that they were dangerous and injurious to him from coming to Christ. Number two, this is rather descriptive. Not only does he count them as loss, what else does he do? He views them as dung, worthless as manure, filthy. Nobody wants to be around that. 
This is how he counted his past accomplishment. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm taking all of that, Hebrew of the Hebrew, as concerning the law of Pharisee, born in the tribe of Benjamin, persecuting the church in my zeal. I'm taking all of that stuff and I'm setting it aside because it's worthless when it comes to Christ's saving work in me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's where he was living. I'm not bringing my righteousness. I'm not bringing my religion. I'm not bringing my upbringing. I'm not bringing my goodness or my kindness. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. He is making a present accounting. And nothing in Paul's life was nearly as important as being in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those things would hinder him. I hope there's nothing in your life that's hindering you from having a focused, growing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Count those things but loss. Lean on Christ. If there's, if, if there's an athlete that's going to be successful, he's going to have to do what, uh, what, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about he's going to have to lay aside those things. That might be good things. Laying aside, remember what Hebrews 12 says, laying aside the weight. Weights are good things in their right place, aren't they? And if an athlete is going to be at the top of his game or the top of her game, then then they've got to lay aside those things that are going to hold them back. There's not an athlete out there that's going to be successful at what he does if he eats like I do. I love... Well, I love good French fries. Don't tell Dr. Manley I said that because I'm not supposed to have them. But I love good French fries. They got flavor in them. They're only good if they're loaded with salt and they're fried. That's the best part of that whole thing. They're fried. But if somebody's going to be a top-notch athlete, they're not going to eat a large fries from McDonald's. They're just not going to do it. Not as often as I might. There are things to set aside. And as a Christian, we might think we have all of these good things that we can take in and we can put, uh, we can put together. Just lay those aside. Paul said, I count them but loss and I view them but dung for the knowledge, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, a present accounting. Look at your life and determine, are there some things in here that I need to lay aside? Just set aside. They're not going to impress God. You know, how often do we think, we don't say it out loud, do we? But how often do we think to ourselves, boy, God God got a ringer when he got me. It's a good thing he brought me into his kingdom because I've got some things to offer him. Paul could have brought this whole resume, but he said, all those things, I count them as loss. So he says, when it comes, uh, when it comes first of all to calculating your losses, he says, take a personal assessment. That's the first one. The second thing is have a present accounting. What you forgot back there, what you set aside back there, those losses back there, keep counting those things but loss. Christian, the older you get in your Christian life and the more you grow in Christ, keep your full dependency on Christ. Don't let, don't let your Christian experience become what you rely on. Always rely on Christ. Make it a present accounting. And then the third thing is this. It involves a precious acceptance. 
Why did Paul calculate his losses? Why is he doing this? Why is he saying in verse number 7, I counted those things but loss? And in verse number 8, I count all things but loss for the excellency. And I count them but done. Why does he say things like that? Look at verse number 7. He says, I'm doing it for Christ. Verse number 8, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The end of verse number 8, that I may win Christ. He's laying aside all of these things that are of his own merit because he saw Jesus as worth more than everything else. It's not your talent or my skill. It's not your education or my personality. It's none of those things. It's me coming to Christ and saying, God, whatever, whatever you want to do, I'm laying everything else aside. This is all about you filling me. Everything in, everything in the language here that Paul is writing to you and me, everything in the language here screams personal relationship with Christ, doesn't it? It's all about knowing Jesus, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, being found in him, not my righteousness, his righteousness. I want to know him, and he's going to talk about the fellowship of his sufferings in just a moment, and we'll get to this. But everything about this is Paul counting his losses and he's, he's setting those things aside. Those are not going to help me when it comes to Christ. It's all about Jesus. Paul wants us to see that knowing Jesus is more valuable than anything else in the world. And the truth is this, church, and you know it. I mean, this is the Wednesday night crowd. You know this. A person can have everything religiously in this world and still have nothing if they don't have Christ. There is a lot of religion out there. If all you want is religion, if all you want, and I'll use the word that that oftentimes we hear about today, if all you want is spirituality, there's a lot of that out there. But if you don't have Christ, well, Jesus Jesus said it like this in Mark chapter number 8. What shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, in the gaining of the whole world, that includes all of the world's religion. That includes all of the world's spirituality and philosophy and education. That includes everything. If he gains everything there is to gain from this world, if he loses his soul, what really did he gain? That's what Jesus is asking. Well, he says, first of all, calculate your losses. Recognize the fact that knowing Jesus is more valuable than anything else in this world. Number two, not only calculate your losses, you need to consecrate your life. And that's in verses 8 and 9. Consecrate means to set apart for God's purpose. Now, there's two types of consecration. We little... A little doctrinal plug here. There's two types of consecration that takes place in the Bible. One, you were consecrated when you got saved. That is a positional consecration. That means you were taken out of Adam and put in Christ. You were set apart for the purpose of salvation. You were taken out of the nature of Adam and put into the nature of Christ. And so positionally you have changed and you have been consecrated or set apart in salvation. But then there is a practical consecration that you are, you are choosing to do and you are participating in by choice. 
Consecrate means to set apart for God. Realize that my life belongs to God and I surrender it to him for your use. And, and, and there's, a, there's a responsibility in that for you and me. Do you remember in um, the book of Joshua when Israel was being ready to be led over into the promised land? Joshua would come to the people. There are certain times Joshua would come to the people and he would say this. Sanctify yourselves. And then he'd give further instruction. That word sanctify is the same word as consecrate. Set yourselves apart. Take steps to make yourself usable to God. Now God does that when you got saved. He does that positionally. But then day to day and practically you and I have to consecrate ourselves. We have to sanctify ourselves. The normal Christian is on the lookout for things that prevent them from being used by God. They always are practicing Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. They're laying aside those weights and those besetting sins, and they're looking unto Jesus so that they can run with patience the race that's set before them. A normal Christian is looking for those things that will prevent them. You have to consecrate yourselves. I have to consecrate myself. What happens when I do that? What happens when the Christian acknowledges, I am not my own, I have been bought with a price, and I'm I'm now set apart for the purpose and the use of God? What happens when we do that? Two things. First of all, there is pleasure in the consecrated life. Do you notice what Paul says there in verse number 8? He talks about the excellency or the superiority, the above and beyond the ordinary, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Paul's point here is that he is able to know Christ in a way, in a consecrated life, in a life where he's setting aside the things of the world. His knowledge of Christ is growing more intimate and it's growing deeper. And this knowledge only comes by experience. May I say that again? What he's talking about in verse number eight, you don't get by coming to church and listening to the preacher. You don't get by reading Adrian Rogers' books. I say that because I love reading Adrian Rogers' books. You get this by experiencing Christ and experiencing this vibrant relationship. Paul said, this is the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's why I've set those things aside. That's why I've, I've surrendered myself to him. That's why I'm setting myself apart. It's one thing to hear someone speak of Jesus, about who he is and what he can do. It's something completely different when you or I experience what Jesus can do. I love hearing good testimonies, don't you? I love hearing testimonies about what God has done or how he provided a need. But you know what I like even more? I'm not being selfish. I like experiencing that. I like seeing God work in my heart. I like seeing specific, direct answers to prayer. That, that It's no mistaking. God did this for Mark. I like experiencing that. That's what Paul's going after here. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to experience this to believe it. And Paul's saying this. He's saying knowing Jesus like this, it doesn't compare to anything this world has you to offer. So I count everything the world is offering me, I count those things as lost. An intimate, personal relationship with Christ that just doesn't compare to anything this world has. 
It's beyond that. Jesus, one writer said, he is more than just a collection of stories in this book. He is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He is our refuge from the storm and our safety in tribulation. And to know him as Savior is just the beginning. Every mile you walk as a Christian ought to be deepening your knowledge of Christ and your relationship with him. Have you ever seen a friendship develop like that where you started out as an acquaintance and then all of a sudden, you know, you start hanging out with that person a little more and you're thinking, man, we're starting to click here. There's a, there's a kindred spirit being developed. We, boy, the more I hang out with him and the more I hang out with her, it just, there's just something right there. And, and that friendship deepens and that love deepens all the time. And the more you spend with them, the greater this relationship gets. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Church, do not, do not be satisfied to only know Jesus as your Savior. That is entry-level relationship. Now, is it a great relationship? Absolutely. Paul talks about him again and again in that regard. But there is so much more in the relationship to Christ than him just saving me from hell. It's that day-to-day friend that sticks closer than a brother that wants my fellowship more than I want his. He desires this from us. There is far more to Jesus than just being your Savior. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. He's offering so much more. So there is pleasure in the consecrated life. Paul's Paul's not going to come up short because he's counting all these good things for loss. He's not going to come up short. There is pleasure in it. The second thing, there's not only pleasure in a consecrated life, there is a payoff in the consecrated life. In May of 2002, the Phoenix Cardinals, the NFL football team in Phoenix, Arizona, offered a guy named Pat Tillman $3.6 million to play three more years for them. He turned that down. I don't know a lot about Pat Tillman, but I know that just a few months earlier, he turned down a 5.6, or an, excuse me, a $9 million contract with the Los Angeles Rams because he was too loyal to the team he was playing with. He wasn't going to let them buy him away. That speaks value to me. Loyalty goes a long way with me. And so when I read that about Tillman, that, that meant a lot. But here's this, here's this player offered 3.6 for the only team he's played for in the NFL. And he's not doing too bad, by the way, as a player. And the reason he turned him down, that was the beginning of May 2002, was because on May 31st of that year, he and his younger brother Kevin went down to the Army recruiting office and enlisted eight months after 9-11 took place. They enlisted in the Army to go fight the enemy. He went and joined the Rangers, and although there was a lot of people saying, boy, that's really something, there were a lot of critics. How in the world could you walk away from your family and this, you're a promising NFL player, you're walking away from this money to go fight in a war nobody wants to fight in. Tillman, by the way, if you followed his story, was killed in April of 2004. Less just, just right under two years later, he's killed by friendly fire in Afghanistan. But my point is, he walked away from all of that. I mean, known as an NFL player, making money, and the offers he was getting continued to be uh, more and more money. He walked away from that to go join the army, and then he died as a corporal. 
It's not like he was making very much money as a corporal in the U.S. Army. And a lot of people said, that was a crazy decision. I can't help but think that back in the day when Paul turned away from Judaism as a rising star among the Jews, as a persecutor of the church, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and touching the law, he was a Pharisee. And he turns around and he follows this carpenter from Nazareth, who, by the way, was executed. And Paul walked away from all that. I can't help but think that somebody questioned Paul's mental acuity. As smart as he is, as educated as he is, how in the world is he walking away from all of that? He left it all to follow Christ. Because, I'll, I'll say what I said a few moments ago, he felt there was nothing worth more than a personal, vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Chances are Paul was disowned by his family. There's only one reference that Paul makes in all of his epistles. Have you ever noticed this? There's only one reference he makes to his family. And it's, a, it's kind of a byword. He's actually talking about God in the book of Galatians. He's talking about God in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15 when he says, who separated me from my mother's womb. And that's the only reference Paul ever makes to his family. He talks about being separated from his mother's womb at birth. That was it. Now we know that Paul had a sister. Luke tells us that in the book of Acts. And that he had a nephew because his sister had a son. Paul never talks about him. It's a good chance that Paul's parents disowned him because of his profession for Christ. That's what happens today. Our missionary Stan Skriloff is in the exact same boat. But when he stood before God, Paul wanted to be able to stand there on judgment day as having accomplished what God gave him to do. Paul knew that his acceptance before God was not in his own works. He knew that if he was going to be accepted in God, it had to be because he was there on behalf of Jesus, or that Jesus Christ was representing him. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 6 that we are accepted by God because Jesus Christ is accepted by the Father. So if we're in Christ, we'll be accepted by God. Paul knew his own righteousness was not going to do it. It had to be some other source. Do you remember when we went through that series here, was it last year, we talked about imputation for a few weeks on Wednesday nights. Romans chapter 4 talks about the imputed righteousness of Christ to me. Christ's righteousness credited to my account. That's what Paul was relying on. And the truth is this. Every Christian is going to stand one day before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. Romans chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And when we do, having received or having lived a consecrated life, we are going to receive reward, crowns uh, that can be earned. You've read in the New Testament, crowns of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory, the soul winner's crown. Jesus promises in Revelation 22, when he comes, I'm bringing my reward with me. 1 Corinthians 3, a, how, a, a life that is built on the right foundation, the Bible said, will be rewarded. If you build your life, remember that illustration Paul said on gold, silver, and precious stones, the, the things that matter. Don't build your life on wood, hay, and stubble. Build your life on things that matter. And if you do, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 14, you'll be rewarded. But listen, listen, living a consecrated life today, setting aside those things that don't matter, doing that today, it just doesn't bring rewards in heaven. 
We have rewards here if we live a consecrated life now. Consecrate your life now. Peace, satisfaction, blessings from God for obedience. You're rewarded now and rewarded later for consecrating your life. Calculate your losses. Consecrate your life. The last thing is this. Consecrate consecrate your longings. Verses 10 and 11 tell us what Paul was passionate about. May I ask you a question? And this is, this is rhetorical. I don't want a verbal response. What in this life are you passionate about? And you have to be honest because you're answering it to yourself. So don't try to, don't try to get the right answer up. What's the honest answer? What am I passionate about in this life? Paul is telling us in verses 10 and 11 what he's passionate about. Look at those verses again and then we'll be done. Here's Paul's passion. Here's his longings. Here's what he says. That I may know him. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul is telling you in those verses what he's passionate about, what he is longing for. What's the first thing? A consecrated life longs for a personal experience. He says that I may know him. That's not talking about know him as Savior. Paul was already saved. He was already a Christian. He wants to know him on a completely different level. The normal Christian life is one that continuously learns about Jesus and grows in grace day by day. That I may know him and keep getting to know him. That's what Paul is saying. A a consecrated life longs for a personal experience. We're not going to turn there, but 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If your life experiences, uh, if you have opportunity to learn, if you have opportunity to grow, let those be, let those be experienced and let that growth come in your knowledge of Christ. It will infiltrate everything else, hopefully, but your primary focus, let it be on knowing Christ. The normal Christian life is one that cannot exist without knowing Jesus. I want to know him. First of all, the consecrated life, it longs for a personal experience. Second, a consecrated life longs for a powerful experience. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the power of Christ living in him. Here's the truth. Paul learned what so many people never never figure out. And here it is. Here's what Paul learned. We cannot live the Christian life. That's what Paul learned. We cannot live the Christian life. It can't be done. If a life is going to be lived through Christ's power, if we're going to live the Christian life, then it has to be empowered by him. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Jesus, or or Paul rather, describes this power of Jesus in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Remember that? He's describing this. The normal Christian life 
is one that longs for Christ to live through me, not me doing it on my own. A consecrated life longs for a personal experience, a powerful experience. Note that next phrase. A consecrated life longs for a painful experience because Paul said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And you can dress that word sufferings up any way you want to in the Greek. It's going to be painful. It means exactly what you think it does. Suffering for Christ. I'm not talking about getting a headache or a bellyache. Suffering for Christ. Now remember what we're talking about? Paul is telling you. He's telling me. He's telling the Philippian church. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm longing for. A painful experience in my pursuit of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. A painful experience. His readiness to go all the way with Jesus and for Jesus, even the rest of that phrase, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, even if those sufferings are going to end in death. Far too many believers view themselves as victims, purporting that everything in life is against them, that they have it hard all the time. Listen carefully. We're talking about the Bible's definition of the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life sees genuine suffering as a legitimate means of growing closer to Jesus. Is that diametrically opposed to how the natural mind thinks? The normal Christian life sees genuine suffering as a legitimate means of growing closer to the Lord. This is Bible teaching. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Legitimate suffering, or genuine suffering rather, is a legitimate means of growing closer to the Lord. James 1, 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Count it all joy. That's not natural to this world, but it's normal in the Christian world. James, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, and by necessities or, or lack that I, I, I need, things that I need, I take pleasure in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Why would you do that, Paul? For when I am weak, then am I strong. It's so different from the the natural world. A consecrated life longs for a painful experience. Why? Because it's a legitimate way. Suffering is a legitimate way to draw closer to Christ. And then the next, a consecrated life longs for a practical experience. Being made conformable unto his death. Coming to the place where we, we count ourselves as dead with Christ. Paul talks elsewhere about dying to sin or dying to self. But if we do those things, Romans 6 says it makes us more alive in Christ. Die to self, your life in Christ grows. Die to sin, 
your sanctified life continues, your consecrated life continues to grow. The normal Christian life is one that has ceased to live for itself. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All this life wants, this consecrated life, all it wants is what God wants. So a consecrated life longs for a personal, powerful, painful, practical, and finally, a pleasant experience. Here's verse number 11. Paul says this, If by any means, if there's any way, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You know what Paul's saying here? I'm not looking to die. Here's what Paul's saying. Between verse 10 and 11, here's what Paul's saying. I'm not looking to die for Christ. I'm willing to, but I'm not looking to. I would rather, verse 11, I would rather be around for the resurrection of the dead. You know what he's saying? I'd rather be around for the rapture. Now, Paul's just being honest. Paul wasn't suicidal. He's not trying to provoke Caesar or Herod or anybody else. He's not trying to tick people off, but he is going to be true to Christ. He said, now, if that means to die, that means to die. But I'd rather stick around for the resurrection of the dead. He's looking for that hope, the return of Jesus Christ. And that ought to be our hope. One of the things that that does, one of the things that looking toward the return of Christ does for the Christian is it purifies us. If I didn't put it on your worksheet, just write down 1 John 3, 3. Every man that hath this hope, this hope of seeing Christ face to face, at any given time he might come back. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he, Christ, is pure. So not only consecrate your life, but consecrate your longings, your your passions. Paul narrowed it down to these few things. Knowing Christ and knowing his suffering and being willing and, and desiring the power of the resurrection. What is it in this life that you are most passionate about? So wrap this up with a couple of questions. Number one, is the life you're living the normal Christian life as defined in the Bible? Not as demonstrated in today's church, but is your life the normal Christian life as defined in the Bible? Second question, if not, what do you need to do in regards to counting your losses, consecrating your life, and consecrating your longings? What needs to change in me? to be the normal Christian that's defined in this book and that's demonstrated by the Apostle Paul. What needs to change? The goal is not to be a special standout Christian. The goal is to be a normal Christian. Paul wasn't a, Paul wasn't a super, he wasn't a super Christian. He was what God held to be a normal Christian. This is what it looks like. This is what you desire. Watchman Nee, I mentioned him in his book a moment ago. He was a Christian who spent the last 20 years of his life in a Chinese jail. He was arrested in 1952 on a bunch of false trumped-up charges and held by the Chinese for 20 years, dying in prison in 1972. He wrote the book called The Normal Christian Life. You really should read that book. He mentioned scripture all the way through the book. But the very first verse he mentions in the opening chapter of the book is Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20. 
And I'll close tonight with what he said about that. That verse says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the whole crux of that verse is, it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. Here's what Watchman Nee said in the opening chapter of his book, the opening page of his book, The Normal Christian Life. The Apostle Paul gives us his own definition of the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I but Christ. Here he is, not stating something special or peculiar, a high level of Christianity, He is, we believe, presenting God's normal for a Christian, which can be summarized in the words, I live no longer, but Christ lives his life in me. Church, this is the normal Christian life. When you look at Paul, don't think to yourself, I could never be like Paul. Because God is saying, that's exactly what I want you to look like. That's the normal. This is the life. Was Paul perfect? Absolutely not. But Paul demonstrates for us the normal Christian life. Someone who is driven by his love for Christ. The love of Christ constrains me. And he's walking in and filled with the Spirit. And when he is walking and living in the Spirit like he should and not fulfilling the lust of his flesh, Paul was an incredible Christian. But according to the Bible... He's a normal Christian. Anything less than a spirit-filled, spirit-led life is abnormal Christianity. And I want to encourage you to develop a normal Christian life. Calculate your losses. Let those things go that that aren't going to be beneficial to you. Consecrate your life. Consecrate your passions, your longings. Let God make you a normal Christian. Let him make me a normal Christian. Lord, thank you for Paul and thank you for his his zeal for you and his love for you and his absolute surrender to what you'd have him to do. Didn't want to die, but was willing to for for you and the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live our lives like that. Make us the type of Christians that you can use in this world. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. Thanks for being here this evening.